Morning Magazine on KGNU. It's Friday, January 27, 2023. I'm your host, Jack Armstrong. Coming up on today's show, KGNU's young adult book reviewer sits down with two local authors. Then we hear about a student-run rally for Narcan in Durango. After that, we tune into Sports Talk with KGNU's Jimmy Searfoss and .org, our weekly look at local nonprofits. At 8.30, it's a BBC update, followed by Connections, with KGNU's Kathy Partridge, who sits down with longtime civil rights and social justice activist George Lakey. As always, the phone lines will be open, and your calls are welcome. At 9.30, Ginger Perry will be in the studio to bring you the Morning Sound Alternative, two and a half hours of eclectic music until noon. That's all still ahead this morning, but first, the headlines with KGNU's Stacey Johnson. Amid two previous vote delays in recent weeks, the Boulder City Council approved Thursday evening new members to the police oversight panel by a vote of 6-3. to three. Mayor Pro Tem Mark Wallach and Council Members Bob Yates and Tara Weiner voted no on the candidate recommendations. Thursday's vote was the third time Council Members dealt with issues surrounding the selection process for new members to the police oversight panel and a complaint filed by John Nestledge alleging that the process is flawed with bias, prejudice, and conflict of interest. In his complaint, Nestledge also targets candidate Lisa Sweeney Moran by including tweets from Sweeney Moran about law enforcement. During last night's meeting, council members also appointed Claiborne Douglas, a municipal lawyer, to investigate Nestledge's complaint into the selection process. Kristen Nichols, the ex-girlfriend of the partner to Aurora's former police chief, Vanessa Wilson filed a federal lawsuit Wednesday alleging Wilson used her position of power to have Nichols arrested in 2021. When police arrested Nichols, they charged her with domestic violence criminal attempt, second-degree assault, burglary, and criminal mischief based on allegations from her ex-girlfriend, Robin Nisita, who Wilson was dating at the time of the arrest. Prosecutors dropped the charges against Nichols last summer. According to the Denver Post, the 85-page lawsuit by Nichols against Wilson also names an Aurora police detective, the city of Aurora, and various Adams County officials. The lawsuit also details allegations of domestic abuse and child custody battles between Nichols and Nasita. The Denver Post says Nasita and Wilson's attorney did not immediately respond to requests for comment, and Aurora spokesperson said the department could not comment on the pending litigation. The Nichols lawsuit comes amid other troubles for Nasita, who last week received an order from an Arapahoe County judge to pay Aurora City Councilperson Danielle Durinsky $3 million after Durinsky sued her for making an unfound child sexual abuse report. Nasita made the child abuse claims against Jurensky when she, Nasita, was an Aurora County caseworker. Nasita also faces criminal charges stemming from the unfound allegations. In the aftermath of Wilson being ousted by Aurora City Manager Jim Trombley in April 2022, Wilson accused Aurora officials, including Jurensky, of conspiring to fire her as they sought to stop Wilson from pursuing police reforms. Aurora officials, including Jurensky, denied Wilson's allegations surrounding her firing. State officials with the Office of New Americans have picked AidKit, a Denver-based company, this week to help administer an unemployment fund to undocumented immigrants. 
According to Colorado Newsline, the state is paying the company to supply necessary technology to host applications for the program, determine eligibility, and provide direct cash payments to recipients through same-day bank transfers or reloadable debit cards for individuals without bank accounts. Colorado lawmakers passed an unemployment benefits measure last year that included a benefit recovery fund to serve unemployed people regardless of immigration status. If operations are a success, Colorado will be the first state in the country to provide unemployment funds to undocumented immigrants. Kathy White of Colorado Fiscal Institute told Colorado Newsline more than half of undocumented workers have unemployment insurance premiums paid on their wages, just like all laborers, but they cannot claim the benefit because of their work authorization status. AidKit also has a history of partnering with the Denver Basic Income Project, along with providing rental aid to undocumented people who experienced job loss during the pandemic. A bill to use AI for early wildfire detection moves forward in the Colorado legislature. KGNU's Juanita Hurtado has more. On Tuesday, the Colorado Senate Committee voted for initial approval of a bill that invests $2 million into artificial intelligence. The AI system will include high-definition cameras in remote positions and mountain tops to discern early signs of wildfire, like smoke plums. According to the experts, climate change effects like heat waves and an increasingly concerning drought will lead to more frequent and destructive fires. Many of these cameras are already in use at lookout towers. The bill to use AI is a part of a new initiative for better employment of firefighters' resources. Following the example of states like California, Oregon, and Nevada, According to AP News, the program will support 40 fixed camera stations and six more mobile stations that can be moved to monitor ongoing fires. For KGNU, I'm Juanita Tortado. The Colorado baker Jack Phillips and his business Masterpiece Cake Shop, known for winning a partial 2018 U.S. Supreme Court decision stemming from refusing to make a cake for a gay couple's wedding, has lost an appeal Thursday before the Colorado Court of Appeals involving a birthday cake for a gender transition. The state appeals court said the pink with blue frosting cake requested by a Colorado lawyer, Autumn Scardena, from Phillips is not a form of speech. The appellate court court decision also said the state law making it illegal to refuse services to people based on protected characteristics such as race, religion, or sexual orientation does not violate a business owner's right to practice or express their religious beliefs. Alliance Defending Freedom, who is representing Phillips, says their client plans to appeal. The U.S. Supreme Court said in the 2018 case for Phillips that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission unfairly dismissed Phillips' religious beliefs, but did not rule on the larger issue if Phillips can invoke a religious objection to refuse service to LGBTQ plus people. Alliance Defending Freedom also has another case before the nation's high court by representing Colorado graphic artist Lori Smith, who says she does not want to design wedding websites for same-sex couples and claims state law violates her freedom of speech.
For today's weather, the National Weather Service says skies will be partly sunny with a high of 44 degrees for Fort Collins and 46 degrees for Boulder and Denver. Today's winds could gust as high as 28 miles per hour for Boulder, 22 miles per hour for Denver, and 18 miles per hour for Fort Collins. Tonight will be partly cloudy with a low of 20 degrees for Fort Collins and 21 degrees for Boulder and Denver. For KGNU, I'm Stacy Johnson. You're listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Jack Armstrong. KGNU young adult book reviewer Phoebe Donovan is back, this time with an in-studio interview. Ellen O'Clover and Jesse Weaver are both Colorado-based authors of young adult fiction. Their books, 7% of Road Devereux and Live Your Best Lie, both deal with different aspects of teens and technology. They'll be presenting their debut novels tonight at the Boulder Bookstore. Ellen O'Clover and Jesse Weaver, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're so excited to be here. Congratulations to you both on the publications of your first books. Thank you. Thanks. Must feel pretty amazing. It does. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, your books are very different in many ways, but mm-hmm. they also they both deal with online identities and social media both the attraction and the dark side. It's a very complicated issue that we are all navigating in different ways. What led you to choose to write about this? You wanna go first, Jesse? Sure. Um, for me, I think a lot of it was, I was a teacher, I taught high school. And so for me, I saw a lot of how my students would put on this front on social media and how they would compare themselves to the front that other people put on on social media. And it just makes it so easy for us to put on this mask of who we want to be and who we want to present to the world, but it can be so damaging, especially when you're comparing yourself to a cultivated image of someone else. So I started to ask myself the question, what happens if you take off those masks? What happens if you start to tell yourself and other people the truth? Is it okay to risk yourself knowing that other people might judge you, knowing that you might not live up to what other people expect you to be? Um, Is it worth putting yourself out there knowing that it's okay to be who you really are and that actually the truth can actually set you free. I love that. I love that about your book. I think it's like such an important message and resonated even with me and I'm almost 30. Um, I think that 7% of Rodevro isn't quite as pointedly about social media, but definitely deals with technology and um, the effect that that has on everyone, especially young people. And um, when I got the idea for the book, I was working at a software startup in their marketing department, and I really wanted to write a story about a young woman who, you know, has an idea for this app, and it kind of runs away with her and becomes bigger than she ever thought that it would be, which I think is probably how the creators of, you know, Facebook and Instagram felt when yeah. their apps ran away with them. Um, and I wanted to write about that incredible potential of technology, but also its potential sinister side, especially with young people. And that's kind of what Roe has to grapple with as the story goes on. Um, I think that technology has, you know, kind of this limitless potential that in a way that other industries don't necessarily, but it also is so ingrained into our lives, especially with social media. And it can have a really impact, big impact on our mental health and all these other things. And so that's kind of what Roe has to deal with and what Jesse's characters have to deal with. Yeah, I love the way that your characters really grapple with the idea of 
what makes us human and how does technology play into that? Mm -hmm. That really resonated with me too. Thanks. Um, are you two, like, are you friends on social media? And Ew, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. For sure. That's how we met. And are you friends in, in real life? Like you Also no, home? yes. <laughs> yeah. Ellen, you're hurting my feelings. <laughs> yeah, Jesse reached out to me um, in an Instagram DM, yeah. actually. It was maybe October, September or October. Yeah. Um, and it was just the best. I was so happy. She was like, you know, I also write YA. My book is also coming out in January. I also live in Denver. And um, I was so happy to meet her. And so we just got coffee. And I've been so grateful to have Jesse in my life because going through the debut process and having your first book come out is so exciting, but also really scary and just an absolute roller coaster. And it's been such a gift to me to have Jessie and her friendship and navigating all of this with someone, you know, by my side that's also going through it. Yeah, seriously, back at you, because there's so many times I feel like that I've texted you like, Ellen, is this normal? And she's been like, I don't know, <laughs> but it's happening to me too. <laughs> and that's been really nice. Totally. Yeah, that sounds like you're really lucky to be able to go through that together. Mm-hmm. I think so. And I was going to ask, like, even though writing seems to be like a solitary occupation, like, how important is it to have, like, a support network? And what does that look like for each of you? Is that oh, each other? Oh, that... so important. Um, and I think that that honestly has been, besides having my book in bookstores, like, the greatest gift of the debut experience is meeting other authors and yeah. forging those friendships. Um you know, before the book deal, I had a critique group here in Denver, which those women are also so incredibly important to me and such a good support system. And like you said, writing can be incredibly solitary. And I think that we can feel also very protective and vulnerable about sharing our work. But so much of the magic of, of being a writer happens when you when you do share it and you have people who are excited about your work with you and who are there to support you during the hard stuff as well. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I met my critique group in grad school, and they were absolutely critical to me getting this book out there. I think without them, I probably would have given up because there's just so many times when it feels like, oh, this is not good. I don't know what I'm doing, and no one's ever going to want to read this. And so to have those people come in and be like, hey, could it be improved? Yes. And we are going to work on that together, and we're here to help you, and we're here to support you. That is very, very huge, I think. Mm-hmm. How does it, like, compare here, like, being a writer to being in other places? We've talked about that quite a bit, actually, because we've both kind of talked about how it sometimes feels like the whole book world is in New York City. It does. Um, (laughs) And I think that there are pros and cons to not being there, like, in the epicenter of Mm -hmm. publishing. I... For me, it's kind of a relief not to be in the heart of everything because publishing as a process can be so overwhelming and so all-consuming, and it's nice to kind of be able to take a step back and be in nature and just find a smaller community. I'm a total introvert, and so big crowds and big groups (laughs) really intimidate me, and so I'm grateful to have, you know, kind of, it, it is a smaller writing community out here, but a really strong one. There are really talented writers in yeah. Colorado and in, just in Denver specifically. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm a total extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> I love people. I love being around people. But I'm actually grateful to not be in the epicenter of everything, too, because uh, it helps me to take that time to just be quiet and be with my thoughts. Because 
I have a really hard time saying no to social invitations because I love them. <laughs> so for me, it's good. I feel like if I were in New York, I would be at every single book launch that I could go to and I would never write any more books because I wouldn't have time to do it. So <laughs> I think it's good that I'm here. Nice. And I understand that you have an event together coming up. Um, yes. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah. We're super excited. Uh, we're going to be at the Boulder Bookstore on Friday at 6.30, correct? Mm-hmm. 6.30. Um, and we're super excited because we are specifically focusing on teens. It's open to anyone, but you know our books are YA, and we both have a heart for writing for teenagers and for the teenage experience. And we've got a really fun game of mm-hmm. murder mystery mash plan. So it's uh, kind of a mixture of both of our <laughs> books. <laughs> so we hope everyone will think that that's super fun. And we're excited to meet future readers and hopefully people who have already read our books. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> That'd be nice. But yeah, it's a free event. Um, you can register online to just make sure you reserve your spot. But we'd love to see anyone there. Yeah. My guests today have been Ellen O'Clover and Jesse Weaver. They'll be presenting their books in person tonight at 6.30 in the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks to both of you for joining me in the studio. Thank you. Thank you. That was KGNU young adult book reviewer Phoebe Donovan. You're listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Jack Armstrong. Durango High School students rallied at the school district board meeting on Tuesday for Rocky Mountain Community Radio Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD brings us this report. What do we want? Narcan! Where do we want it? Schools! What do we want? Narcan! Where do we want it? Schools! What do we want? Narcan! Where do we want it? 25 high school students led chants and held up signs in front of the school administration building. They demanded permission to carry Narcan on campus, in their backpacks, and in their pockets. Narcan is used to reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. It's administered as a nasal spray. Ilya Stritikas is a senior and the Durango High School class president. Our communities and our high schools suffer from the opiate epidemic, specifically with fentanyl lacing. A couple kids, we've been getting together and trying to come up with solutions to help keep overdoses from happening in our community. And every study we read, everything we read, kept coming back to Narcan. Tuesday night, school administrators and school board members expressed appreciation that students were coming down with this issue. But they also expressed concerns allowing students to carry and administer Narcan, which runs counter to school policy and the law. Here's Superintendent Karen Chesser. State statute does not cover students, and that is according to our attorneys. So there is a legal risk. You never know what the legal risk is until it's been tested. So we would be the first. Narcan is available on all Durango school campuses and a range of school staff are trained to administer it. According to the Durango Herald, in 2021, three Durango high school age students overdosed on Percocet laced with fentanyl, and one of those deaths were fatal. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. And now, it's sports talk. There's no sports talk last week. I hear Jimmy got abducted by aliens and he had to fight them off in order to save the world like an Independence Day. Nah, I'm just kidding. Jimmy just got the sniffles. 
Hello and once again, welcome back to the very best sports show on KGNU Sports Talk with Jimmy. I am your host, Jimmy Searfoss, back with even more sports news and stories from across the front range. I know you guys were missing me so much last week, but I'm back this week. I was sick, but now I'm feeling a lot better. So let's hop into this sports news. And if you're like me, and you are a massive football fan, and chances are you are, because I know Denver is, because when the Broncos won the Super Bowl back in 2015, a million people showed up to the parade in Denver to celebrate, but us Colorado football fans haven't had much to cheer about lately. The Broncos haven't done much on the field, the Buffaloes haven't done much on the field, and the Colorado State Rams have done even less on the field. But what if I told you that there was a successful football team in Colorado? Let me introduce to you the Mile High Blaze, the all-women's football team, and the 2022 Women's Football Alliance champions. They don the navy and orange like their professional male counterparts and, like the Broncos, are known for their dominant style of defense. They play in the WFA, the Women's Football Alliance, and it is the biggest and most successful women's football league to ever exist. Not only do they provide a space for women to play professional football, the league has sent 15 women to coach and scout at the NFL level. It is also the first women's league to play a national championship in an NFL stadium and have a game nationally broadcasted. Now, the league is divided into three divisions of teams, the top being the pro teams. There's also Division 2 and 3. The pro teams have two conferences, National and American. The Blaze play in the pro division of the American Conference, and they have been massively successful. Under the management of Win Flato, they have won five division championships, four regional championships, and have been to the conference championships in the last three seasons, and of course, league champions last season. Flato actually started on the team as a volunteer and worked her way up into the ownership role, and she grew as the team grew. It's pretty crazy to think about it considering they just started with 20 women on the roster when they were first made in 2013, and now they are up to double that on their roster. And they need it with the schedule that they play. It's a nine-week-long schedule with two bye weeks. They play teams from Houston, Nevada, California, and they compete for a playoff spot, and then it is on. The playoff games are televised by companies like ESPN, and travel expenses are paid for by the WFA. To round it all out, the winning team gets thirty grand in championship rings. The Blaze have theirs from last season, and soon they will begin their prep for their quest for the next ring. The season schedule isn't actually out yet, but the season starts in April, so they'll be getting ready to go pretty soon here. The WFA has done great things for women and football, so make sure you go and follow them and give them some attention when the games get put on TV and such. And that is all the time I got for you today here on Sports Talk with Jimmy. I've been your host, Jimmy Searfoss, here on KGNU. Make sure you tune in next week at this same time for more. Time now for .org, spotlighting the work of local nonprofits and co-ops. .org spoke with Shauna Crocker of the upcoming Colorado Environmental Film Festival. Our festival is February 23rd through the 26th this year, the American Mountaineering Center in downtown Golden, and that's our in-person festival, which includes a silent auction and networking opportunities, films that evoke emotions from people, which results in all kinds of interesting conversations and discussions. Plus, we're excited to have our in-person eco-expo, which is a room full of 
organizations and vendors and others who are doing something sustainable. They're either nonprofits working in the environment or they're businesses that have sustainable practices. And then our virtual festival begins on February 27th and goes for a week. Our films, they're beautiful. Many of them are stunningly beautiful, but most have a really sobering message. And some are just downright tearjerkers because our mission is to inspire, educate, and motivate people to make a difference in our environment through film. We knew there were a lot of passionate filmmakers out there who were putting their heart and soul and everything into these films that we wanted people to learn from them and step out into our Eco Expo right outside the theaters and engage with people who are making a difference. So we had the Eco Expo silent auction, which is huge for us in fundraising efforts and gives us an opportunity to, again, engage others who are doing sustainable things. The other component of our festival are KIF for Kids. And we have a program for students and teachers that has been very popular as well. Friday mornings turned out to be a good opportunity to offer a program for teachers to bring students to our festival to see films made by or for youth teachers uh, during the pandemic were not able to bring students live to our program. So we set up a system where teachers could receive a free code to access our online films to show to their students, even though teachers could now come back to see us in person on Friday morning to our theater to see a couple hours worth of films that were either submitted by youth or chosen for youth with directors, special other additional speakers or programs if possible. We can now offer the online virtual festival, specially chosen films for teachers to choose to show their kids and they like it because they can access the directors. We had 17 films submitted in our youth film submissions category this year. This year is exciting because a contingent of the kids from Hawaii, who always make awesome films, are actually coming to our festival to show their films to our youth. Filmmakers do attend our festival. That's another thing we want people to know is that they could bump into filmmakers from around the world who like to come and watch audiences react to their films that they made. Last year, we had 2,000 students participate through the virtual program. And students are front and center of the climate anxiety that's out there. We actually have quite a few films that address climate anxiety, too, this year. For further information, go to the Colorado Environmental Film Festival website, CEFF.net. For KGNU, I'm Steve Miller. You've been listening to KGNUs.org. For more information on this organization or to listen to other episodes, please go to news.kgnu.org. That's all the time we have for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host, Jack Armstrong. Thank you to Stacey Johnson, Alexis Kenyon, Juanita Rotato, Jimmy Searfoss, and Chris Schulz for their help with today's program. Up next, it's Connections with Kathy Partridge and Rosanna Longo-Better. That's after these headlines from the BBC.